0: This is Chapter 51 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Cherkovich. Women and politics take center stage this week. First up is a dystopian novel set in a future version of the U.S. where women's rights have been severely curtailed. Then we get a preview of the final book in the Red Sparrow trilogy featuring Russian ballerina turned spy Dominika Egorova. Red Clocks by Lainey Zumas has repeatedly been described as a new incarnation of the Margaret Atwood classic, The Handmaid's Tale. In the book, we meet five women who struggle with the question, what is a woman for? She spoke to our Marla Diamond about it.
1: So in the book, abortion is once again illegal in the United States. In vitro fertilization is banned. And a law is passed that says that any adopted child must have two parents. It sounds dystopian, but yet very real.
2: Yeah, I, I, the all almost all of the laws and red clocks are based on proposals that have made been made by people who are well, I, I should say men who are currently in in office. Um, so to me, there's actually a more paratopian or paratopian feeling rather than dystopian. It, it's I think the world of red clocks is very close to our own, maybe right next door uh, because it would be relatively easy depending on you know how Congress votes uh, for these laws to be true fairly soon in in our own America
1: so when did you conceive of the book and were you surprised at how relevant it is in the present day
2: I, I was surprised and and really disturbed and um, kind of horrified actually because I, I started the book many years ago and, and 2010. Um, and it did not start out in any way as, as a sort of survey of a, American politics or, or trying to be an indictment of our current politics. It really started um, quite personally. Um, I was thinking a lot about motherhood and fertility, infertility. I was dealing with infertility um, in my own life. And, um, and I Thought up a character who was also dealing with that, and in in my case i I had a partner, um, but I wanted to explore a character who was solo and happily solo but wanted to become a mother and thinking about certain laws that would put pressure on her situation um, just as much as they would put pressure on the character of a fifteen year old high school student who is the, her student um, who finds herself pregnant and so I started out with my characters, but once I began to do a bit of research uh, into, uh, again, our own politics, both for myself uh, and for the book, I came upon um, the personhood amendment and the personhood movement and people who were really uh, dedicated to securing the rights of a human egg at, you know, the moment of conception. and so. Once Trump came into office, uh, you know, with his vice president, Mike Pence, who had been the architect of a lot of um, kind of fetal personhood laws uh, or proposals when he was governor of Indiana, um, I was really frightened. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So at one point in the story, uh, the character that you say you relate most to Roberta, the biographer. Um, yeah. thinks about the protests she went to against the proposed 28th Amendment to the Constitution banning abortion. She's not worried about its passage. And then she kicks herself when it becomes law, because as a history yeah. teacher, she should have known how many you yeah. say, how many horrors are legitimized in the light of day, is what you say in the novel, against the will yeah. of most of the people that that
2: is very timely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for myself, but also for a lot of people I know and people in my family, I, I think some of us, even those of us who, who con- you know, I, I consider myself politically engaged and really interested in the world. But even you know, for me, I I, I think I spent many, uh, several of the Obama years kind of feeling fairly complacent about, um, certainly about reproductive rights and, um, but also about you know other other laws that I kind of took for granted. And, and so what happens when we do sort of both literally and figuratively wake up one morning and um, realize that those those rights are, are being eroded? And and I think, too, I mean, I, I think for me, I, I'm also speaking as someone who, um, because I'm white, I have certain privileges in the U.S. that a lot of people don't have. And I, I think that there is you know, probably something really naive of me to just say, wait a second, I thought that we had more rights than we do. You know, I mean, I think I think that's part of my white privilege. But, um, you know, certainly I didn't even when when Trump was elected, I did not expect um, the the sort of how speedy a lot of um, erosions of rights would be. And I'm not just talking about reproductive rights, but um rights for uh, people who emigrated here from other places, um, rights of, of people who are stopped by the police. I mean, we could, the list could go on, right? Um, but it's it's been a pretty fast erosion.
1: And when you, you talk about the, the racial differences, that is brought up um, a little bit in your book. There's one yeah. uh, black, uh, and, and I don't think you really discover that she's black um, until the end. I didn't at least... Uh, think that she mm-hmm. was she is the friend of the daughter who yeah. is seeking an abortion and what do you call her a, a name what is it the, the <laughs> mutilator or the um, oh, um and it, right. it does show like how different <laughs> it is for a black girl to be pregnant versus a white
2: girl right because her friend Yasmin um, when she becomes pregnant um, is really um, quite aware of all the stereotypes um, that would be visited upon her, you know, if, uh, an unwed black teenage mother, you know, the the ways in which that kind of cultural uh, stereotype would be held against her. And, and mean, you know, she wants to be a doctor. She wants to go to college and, and do a bunch of other things other, rather than become a mother at age, you know, 14. Um, but again, yeah, the daughter character is becoming aware in this book of of her own whiteness and how it helps her and how Yasmeen, um kind of already had several strikes against her uh, when she was dealing with the same question.
1: And instead of having a wall with Mexico in
2: your book, there's
1: a wall yeah.
2: with Canada,
1: the pink wall.
2: <clears throat> there is. And it is called the pink wall. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And and. So before November 2016, um, I was, you know, I had finished a, a draft, a couple of different drafts of the book, and it, I already had this, this idea that Canada would be helping the U.S. to enforce its own um, laws. And so if a woman is trying to get into Canada, either for an abortion or for advanced fertility treatments, she will be uh, arrested and sent back. But I didn't have the name, The Pink Wall, until after Trump came to power, uh, because, you know, he kept going on and on about this wall that he was going to build. And I thought, oh, my God, I have to put an echo of this horrific, you know, phrase into my book, because there is, you know, that question of um, things we have to climb over or climb under or, or break through. And so a wall itself is so symbolic. But. You know, when I'm listening to our new president talk about this literal wall he's going to build, that sort of introduced its own sense of urgency um, to what I was going to put in my
3: book.
1: Well, it's great timing. Um, And I I wanted to talk a little bit about the characters and the sort of tone of the book, which is very patriarchal, uh, very Mm -hmm. uh, when you uh, name the men in the book, they they're by their name, but you often refer to the female characters just by title, the biographer, the wife, the daughter, the mender. Um, So it it does talk about, you know, women's role in society.
2: Yeah. And that was one of the main reasons I wanted to try doing that with those labels and to see just what would come up for me as a writer, but also to invite the reader to, to think about, um, identity and and how we do get uh, kind of put into these these roles and um, given labels that don't admit our own multiplicity and the fact that someone might be a wife and then and she's also going to be a million other things um, but what happens when when that character herself starts seeing herself maybe according to that role and Forgetting about not we're not forgetting about but but just not having space to inhabit other elements of her identity and so in the book um, the characters do have names and the names are used by other characters but they're not used in the sections where the character is is, is we're sort of in that character's viewpoint and um, yeah and it started out as kind of a craft experiment and I decided to keep it and um, because as you say it is going to hopefully raise those questions in in the reader. And I'm glad that it's something you noticed and maybe had questions about. Um, What do you think the effect is for for you as a reader?
1: I think that in a way, um, these women don't have a voice. I mean, they do have a voice, but it's not loud. Um, They were Mm -hmm. steamrolled by this new amendment, um, which Mm -hmm. uh, impacts every character in the book. And, right. um, you know, it's kind of like a man's world and we're living in it. Right. And, and, and right. it does also speak, it's very prescient uh, because of the Me, Me Too movement as well. Um, right. so, so there's a lot of, you know, very um, ripped from the headlines uh, experiences in this book. So I, I found that very right. interesting.
3: Yeah. I mean, and, and
2: as you observe, I mean, there is a, I, I didn't want to write a book where there was just this, Sort of triumphant, um, you know. Every single female character says and does exactly what she wants to do because I think that would have kind of undermined the uh, the the threat or the the peril of of kind of these laws. And um, but I but I also didn't want to write a book where that sort of uh, voicelessness remained static throughout the whole thing. I mean, my hope is that some of that does shift throughout the book, but uh, it's and it's one of the striking things about the Me Too movement um, of, of just how dramatic and powerful and, and sort of startling to a lot of people it is when women, you know, say this is this was my experience. And um, and I'm really so grateful to the women who have been uh, leading that that movement. So.
1: It's interesting how you insert the biographer's book that she's writing, pieces of that novel, uh, mm-hmm. which deal with a 19th century female polar explorer. I assume she's fictional. Um, she and is fictional, it's, yeah. It's written between chapters. So mm-hmm. first I'm wondering, when you dreamed up these women, was the explorer part of it? Was she added? Um, and what could we take away from her story?
2: Sure. She kind of came along as I was developing the biographer character because I wanted the reader to be able to participate at least a little bit in the biographer's um, intellectual and and creative project and not simply hear, oh, okay, she's writing a book, but rather, you know, see what that book was and share in a a bit of her obsession about this um, 19th century woman. And, and the, the sort of formal choice to make those pages about the explorer kind of interstitial um, kind of fragments that that are tucked between the the chapters of the present day women um, was an intentional um, kind of gesture at the ways in which um, you know in our own lives today we are are kind of braided into the history of of women who came before us, many of whom don't have books written about them and don't, you know, might not even be known to us, but uh, but are are there, um, you know, and were there anyway. And the biographer character is really interested in kind of restoring or recovering um, some of the the stories that has been buried or lost or or sort of never told in the first place. And um, so I I wasn't sure exactly what would happen um, for the reader, at least, to, to Experience those um, sort of interludes for the with the Polar Explorer, but I hoped at least it would um, be a kind of textural difference or, or um, a- another layer of history uh, threaded um, into the the present day moment, um, just to kind of expand the scope a little bit of um, some of the questions that the novel is asking. Right. Right. Because I, I didn't want the Polar Explorer to necessarily be entirely heroic either you know I mean there's a, a way in which uh, she participated in, in certain kinds of exploration or um, uh, kind of colonial uh, enterprise that uh, had some dubious consequences in you know in in the Arctic and and so you uh, so yes, yeah, but she also she just sort of emerged from the biographer. She was not there at the very beginning, right, and she
1: uh looks into a research's pack ice uh yeah. to predict its behavior um and then a, 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 open up shipping channels so uh, right but it's interesting at the end of her story that she ends up giving all that research to a man. <laughs> So you would never even know that a woman was the one who developed these new shipping channels to the north. Exactly. And she
2: thinks that her data is important enough that, you know, she's like, okay, it doesn't have to be published under my name, but it has to be published. And um, again, that is a nod to a a lot of other women who who made a a similar sort of choice um, back in the day when, you know, someone might not believe a woman had written this or, you know, I don't she is it's not believed that she actually found that that data herself, um so she has to give it to a, an acquaintance to publish right. um, probably
1: pretty common for the day, I would imagine, yeah, Even, I would too, because yeah, yeah, um women wrote under pseudonyms that were men's names or Just used their um, initials so that they didn't identify themselves as female. I wanted to talk a little bit about why you decided to place the characters in a a seaside town, a small uh, seaside town in Oregon, um, so that their lives are intertwined, so that each of them can make an outsider observation of the other and each of them can make assumptions, and judgment, and there's jealousy, mm-hmm. and that's so common among women and men. Yeah. Um, but you you decided to intertwine all of their lives.
2: I did. I mean, when I started writing Red Clocks, um, one of my the, the things I was most curi- feeling curious about and uh, really eager to delve into was female friendship and, and the complexities of it. And um the The ways in which that you know women can have these very fierce uh loyalties to each other and uh you know even in a romantic way, not necessarily a sexual way, although obviously you know that can be a component too but but that is shot through with as you say jealousy or or rivalry um, or uh, kind of or or envy about you know the other person's situation and um I, so when I started writing, you know, the biographer and the wife, um, you know, the, theirs was, I wanted theirs to be a friendship that was fraught with a lot of um, judgment. And because, you know, they've made some different choices in their lives. And one of the things I really, makes me really enraged is when I, I watch us, and by us, I'll just say, you know, human beings. <laughs> um, it kind of suffer because we're we're put you know our lives are put in competition with the other, like oh you had a kid, well, I didn't have a kid or you wrote a book, I didn't write a book, or what's your career you know what's your were you born into more money than I was you know that that kind of um judging and and comparing and despairing and um so those two characters are certainly in the grip of that and 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 sort of more broadly, I, I'm always interested in kind of small communities where there is a, a sort of, everyone ends up brushing up against the other. Just for a fiction writer, it's kind of a cool um, uh, kind of container to use. And um, as for the Oregon coast, it was originally set in the East Coast, but um, I moved out to Oregon in 2011 to take a job at Portland State. And... Uh, and the coast here, I don't know, have you ever been to the Oregon coast? I haven't, it, but I would love to. It is so beautiful and just so fierce and stormy. And, and, you know, there's all these cliffs and rocks and mountains and trees. And so I had never, you know, seen it until 2011. And then when I, when I did see it, I, I said, oh, I, I need to move my, my book over here <laughs> because it's just, it, it kind of captured my imagination. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Well, I I thank you so much for joining
0: us today. Thank you. Retired CIA officer Jason Matthews brings his Red Sparrow trilogy to a close with the final book, The Kremlin's Candidate. If you aren't already familiar with the books, don't worry, you soon will be. That's because the debut novel in the series is going to be a major motion picture starring Jennifer Lawrence. I recently spoke with Jason about the book and it's ripped from the headlines plot about the U.S. and Russia.
3: The plot is fairly simple and fairly classic in terms of the genre. Vladimir Putin has a mole at the highest levels of the U.S. government. That mole becomes one of three candidates to take over the CIA as director. If that person gets the job, they automatically read all the names, the true names of the Soviet are the Russian assets that the CIA is running in Moscow, including Domenica Agarova's name. So it's a, it's a, it's a race to see who, who, who survives.
0: So this idea of Russian meddling in the U.S., it's pretty timely now, but I guess it's something that they've kind of been doing for a while, haven't they?
3: They've been doing it for about a 100 years since the Russian Revolution. I wake up every morning thanking Vladimir Putin for being such a great uh, source of content.
0: And uh, we also see a lot of, and I dare say, uh, more than maybe we bargained for, of Vladimir Putin in this book. What made you choose to use him as the villain instead of creating a new character that was maybe Putin-like?
3: I just thought that when you're, you're talking about the modern Russian Federation, uh, it's embodied in, in Putin and his his uh, his, his goofy rolling gait and all the things he does in elections and in the, in the in the world. And I thought, why why invent uh, an iconic uh, villain when we have one at hand?
0: I imagine a trip to Russia is out of the question for you now.
3: I don't think I could <laughs> even take a you know a cruise ship to St. Petersburg.
0: Now, I know that um, you're a retired CIA officer. How much of, uh, of what you write about is based on your experiences?
3: Well, I, I would say that uh, all my books are informed by my career uh, in the CIA. It's fictionalized, but um, the, the, the people are mosaics of people I've known and worked with, and the operations and the tradecraft are fictionalized accounts of things that uh, my wife and I did. She was a, a CIA veteran, too.
0: And I know you make a, a mention in the book that the way that spying is done nowadays it is changing.
3: Oh, absolutely. Can you imagine the social media and uh, face, facial recognition software and instant communications uh the, the, the world has shrunken and it, it, it provides challenges to classic espionage.
0: So this is the end of the road of these books, but a lot of people are going to get their first introduction to the world you've created uh, when the Red Sparrow film premieres in March. What was that process like for you?
3: well um when the when the book was uh, the first book Red Sparrow was bought by twentieth Century Fox the film rights were bought um, I was taken on as a technical advisor to help the screenwriter and the director at least keep the trade craft and the techniques accurate. Um, the big challenge for any author seeing a book of his made into a movie is the uh is the shortcuts that Hollywood takes and the uh, the other things they add and subtract, but um, a, a screenplay is a lot different than a book, and um, it's just been it's been a fascinating and very interesting and gratifying process for me.
0: And I'm sure you can't say too much, but how do you feel about Jennifer Lawrence being cast in uh, Dominica's role?
3: Well, we visited the set and we saw how hard all those actors work. You know, for for a a, a four-minute scene, it takes all day to film, you know, different angles and stuff. And Jennifer Lawrence is a, an instinctive actress, and uh, she was practicing her Russian accent, and she actually, high cheekbones, she looks a little bit Slavic, and... Uh, I was pleased this punch. The cast is just nothing but uh, professionals. And um, we've seen the movie and it's uh, it, it's atmospheric and it's evocative. Uh, it, it's a, It's a terrific movie.
0: Going back to the books, if I may, something that people who haven't read your books might not know is that you put a recipe at the end of every chapter.
3: That's right.
0: How did that come about? Because it seems like a really odd little thing to have in, a, in an espionage book.
3: Well, I'd always remi- uh, admired uh, food writing in books. Len Dayton used to write about food. Uh, William F. Buckley used to write about food in his spy books. And I thought, uh, as, as well as writing about the meals the characters a- ate, at the end of the chapters, I put in a little elliptical paragraph just to stir things up and just to make it a little different.
0: Have you tried the recipes that uh, you uh, provide the reader?
3: Absolutely, sure. But, you know, the, the recipes don't have, um, they don't have measurements or oven temperatures or times. Uh, it's sort of like your grandmother's recipes, a pinch <laughs> here and a pinch there.
0: So what's next for you? Maybe a cookbook?
3: Uh, I'd still have to get the cookbook approved by CIA. (laughs) But uh, I think um, at the end of this trilogy, um, I I told myself I'd take some time off. And the next morning I was staring at the uh, computer screen, plotting another plot and new characters and a a new story.
0: Well, I know I look forward to reading whatever you come up with. Jason Matthews, author of The Kremlin's Candidate, the final book in the Red Sparrow Trilogy. Thank you for joining me today.
3: Thank you, Lisa.
0: By the way, Red Sparrow hits theaters March 2nd. And that's our show for this week. We'll be back in two weeks with a couple of books based on true crime stories, including one that captivated New York City at the turn of the last century. In the meantime check out our author videos at youtube.com slash WCBS 880. And if you like our podcast, let us know by tweeting us at WCBS 880 books. And just a small favor here, be sure to spread the word about our podcast to the book lovers in your life.